0: By anybody's standards, Jesus was a bit of a party animal. Uh, He enjoyed a really good shindig, any opportunity for a bit of a knees up. He wasn't a party pooper. He wasn't the kind of person that many people in church might not naturally want to be around. The very first miracle he performed, of course, occurred at one of the most joyous and important parties that could ever be held in the culture of that day, a wedding and turning water into wine was something absolutely awesome. He made sure that the party would be able to continue as planned. And then as the story goes on, you'll know that Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew to follow him, and he goes to Matthew's house and joins in a party that's happening there. And as you go through the Gospels, you'll see that time and again, Jesus is found at parties. A number of the parables that he taught, including the one that we look at this evening, also revolve around parties. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that the Baptists of the day, the good religious leaders, wanted to criticize him for all this blinking partying, And uh, about the only thing they could accuse him of, actually, at one stage, was the fact that he was going on and on about parties, especially parties that were frequented by the wrong kinds of people. What was he doing going to places with tax collectors, whores, and other notorious sinners? The problem is sometimes I think we can get a lot like those Pharisees and forget that Jesus compared God's invitation to be part of the kingdom of God to a king inviting his subjects to an amazing party. And that's what I want to look at this evening. Because the problem is, if we don't remember that, not only will we lose our own joy that comes from being part of a great party, but we'll lose our enthusiasm for inviting other people to such a party as well. And my prayer this evening as we look at this parable is that we'll, uh, we'll rediscover something of our own joy and reinvigorate our passion about inviting others to come and join the party that is the kingdom of God. So, would you turn with me in your Bibles, there are pew Bibles at the end of every pew, uh, to Matthew chapter 22. If you've got an app on your phone, you might want to open it. In just a moment, we're going to read that parable. Alison will be coming to read for us, but let me just set the stage a a moment for you. Because it's important we understand, if you turn back to chapter 21 in your Bible, you'll see that the events that lead up to Jesus telling this parable, are very important. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Next day he goes into the temple and for the second time in his ministry he drives out the money changers, heals uh, the blind and the lame that are there and then he retires to Bethany for the night. The next day he goes back to the temple again and according to Luke's account uh, Jesus is teaching and preaching and it's at that moment he's confronted by the Jewish religious leaders who who question him basically on what on earth does he think he's doing? What is all this healing that he's up to and this teaching that he's uh, offering? And Jesus responds to them by telling them a series of parables, three parables that are in essence messages of judgment against those very religious leaders. The first, a parable about two sons. The second. Parable of a vineyard, leased out to some tenant farmers, and the third, well, the third is the one that I want us to look at this evening. So Alison's going to come, and she's going to read for us from Matthew chapter 22. Thank you, Alison.
1: And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city then he said to his servants the wedding feast is ready but those invited were not worthy go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good so the wedding hall was filled with guests but when the king came in to look at the guests he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen.
0: Bless you, Al. Thank you. As I pointed out in the first week of this little series we're doing on the parables, we, we need to be careful not to over-allegorize or over-interpret the parables. You've got you've to come to each parable and really focus on what the main issue is for Jesus to have told the story in the first place. And we need to make sure that any other conclusions and applications we draw for them are therefore consistent with the main message of that. I've heard fantastic flowery sermons and expositions on some of the uh, parables over the years which have nothing to do with the context in which Jesus told them. So we need to be very careful. So keeping that guideline in mind, I-, I want to help you understand tonight that this parable actually functions on three levels. The first is this, which I've alluded to already. It is a message of judgment to the Jewish religious leaders. Now, as I said earlier, this is the third uh, parable in which Jesus responds directly to the religious leaders of the day, um, because they were questioning his authority, questioning why he on earth he was healing and, and teaching and stuff. So that's quite clearly the main message of this parable. It's a message of judgment to the Jewish leaders. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, how dare you challenge me? I am who I am. I am the Son of God, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, this parable, as we know, is about the kingdom of heaven. It's obvious that the king in the parable, of course, is God himself. And the basic premise of the story that Jesus tells is that the king invites a number of people to what in those days, as we said earlier, was one of the most important and joyful kinds of parties that somebody could ever Even in the poorest families of the day, a wedding feast was a full week-long celebration. The family of the groom would serve the very best food and drink that they could possibly afford. And if you had an invitation to a wedding, you were very unlikely to turn it down. So here, it's a royal wedding. A king is inviting people to come to a wedding feast and you're not gonna turn that down. Probably the most anticipated wedding of our day and generation was the 2011 wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. And you'll know that because of austerity at the time, the royal family promised to make this a slightly more subdued event. They only spent 26 million pounds. There you go. 1,900 guests were invited. And if you were one of the fortunate ones, I guess there was no way you were turning down the opportunity to go. Now, I need to clarify what I've just said because over $20 was spent on security. But still, my daughter's going to get a £2.50 wedding dress and that'll be it. A wedding, a fantastic occasion... And Jesus explains this story, this parable, that the kingdom of heaven is like the greatest celebration imaginable, thrown by the wealthiest and most important person imaginable. And the idea that anybody would turn down an invitation to that, flip me, it's not going to happen. You're going to go. And the religious leaders listened on. They just knew that Jesus was having a go at them. You notice in the parable when the king sends out a second group of servants to invite for the second time those who'd refused the first invitation, they get two reactions. Most of the people seem indifferent and couldn't be bothered. They just uh, went about their work. And there were others who actually became hostile. And we read that they persecuted and even killed uh, the messengers, and because of their rejection of his invitation, the king, God, sends his troops to destroy those who have mistreated his servants. And then the king sends out yet another group of servants to go into the world. This time, they invite everybody that they can find, good or bad, to come to the feast. And as a result, the wedding hall is jam-packed full with guests. Now, if you go back to the text and look closely, you'll see that after Jesus told the first two parables in this sequence... You see clearly that the religious leaders got the message. They they got it. They understood that he was really having a go at them. Verse 45 tells us when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So they're on message. They, They get it. The message here is pretty clear. God invited Israel into his kingdom, but they'd rejected his invitation. God sends additional messengers, the prophets and people like John the Baptist, to extend one last invitation, but the Israelites remain indifferent and hostile to those messengers, and they kill them. They kill John the Baptist, for instance. That's what happened. So God's going to judge Israel. He's going to destroy their city, and true to that promise, as you will know, Titus led the Roman army to conquer the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple 40 years later in about 70 A.D. So all of this can be placed in a historical context. We can see here the authority of Jesus. He's teaching, he's prophesying, and things will come to fulfillment. Because Israel had rejected the king's invitation, God sent his servant out into the rest of the world, particularly to the Gentiles. Ta-da! You and me. And that's how we get to hear and receive an invitation to enter the kingdom. Isn't that lovely? We get an invitation, and so we come, and we respond. The Apostle Paul goes into a great lot of detail about that. If you're interested about it, go home and read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you'll see how all of that works out. So, as I've already pointed out, the main theme of this parable is very clear. It's a message of judgment against the Jewish religious leaders. But there's a second aspect of this parable as well that we need to note very carefully. And it's this it's a call for each individual to evaluate his or her response to God's invitation. In other words, if God has invited you to be part of his kingdom, to come to this great feast, this great celebration, how are you responding? How have you responded? You'll notice that the king issues a number of invitations. It's interesting because he never issues an edict. He never pronounces, he never forces anybody to come to the party. You are cordially invited. That's what it says on the front of your newsletter about the theme for tonight. And God does that. He cordially invites you. He doesn't demand that you come. He doesn't pull you kicking and screaming. He invites you. The choice is whether to accept the invitation or not. That means that every one of us here this evening has to respond individually to that invitation. Just because you're sat here tonight, just because you've been part of Mariah for donkey's years or have chapel affiliations going back as long as you're third generation or whatever, it doesn't matter. The question is, how have you individually, personally responded to God's invitation? If you've never accepted God's invitation to enter his kingdom, or if you're not sure whether you've done that, I would urge you, please listen very carefully to what I'm about to say over the next few minutes, because I sincerely believe that your current joy and your eternal destiny depend on your response to God's invitation to you tonight. God cordially invites you to enter his kingdom. He does that by sending his only son, Jesus, to this earth to die on a cross and make it possible for you to enter God's kingdom. It's interesting, in this conversation with one of those Jewish religious leaders, you may remember this from John chapter 3, a guy called Nicodemus, Jesus actually describes the invitation. He goes into a bit of detail about it. He says it like this, Look, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God loves each and every one of us so much that he was willing to send his Son to die on a cross for us. And he promises that if you'll trust in what God has done for you through his Son, that you will receive eternal life. That's what it's saying there in John chapter 3. That eternal life is not only a quantity of life, which will be enjoyed forever in the presence of God, but it's a quality of life because we get to experience it now, today. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So if you've never accepted the invitation that God cordially gives to you, I'd humbly suggest that you do something about that tonight. As a pastor, it always intrigues me that people would not receive an invitation like that. And I wonder why. And as I was studying this parable, I think this parable actually gives us an insight into three barriers that actually come up to stop people sometimes receiving this kind of invitation. The first, I think, is, well, indifference. I mean, we see that in this parable. Some in the parable refused to accept the king's invitation because they were distracted by everyday things. They had other things to be doing. They had family. They had responsibilities. They had jobs. They weren't openly hostile to God. They just didn't think they needed him. But what they failed to realize, of course, is that accepting the king's invitation would actually bring fullness to every other area of their lives. And perhaps this describes you. Perhaps he's described somebody listening to this uh, on the internet. You've never been openly hostile to God, but you're just too busy, for goodness sake. Life's crazy. Look at your diary. God has invited me, okay, fine. But look, maybe when I'm retired, but not now. I've got too much on. I just want to say to you, if that's you, you are missing out on so much that God has for you. In every area of your life. So you may be indifferent to God's invitation. The second thing we see in the parable is that, well, okay, you may be hostile to it. There were some in the parable, as we see, who were openly hostile to the king and to his servants. And there are a lot of people like that in our culture today. They're not merely indifferent to God, but they are openly hostile to him. I'm sure we've all got stories that we could tell about how people have been hostile to us sharing our faith or whatever. Perhaps you're one of those people. Well, the good news is it's not too late to accept God's invitation and become part of his kingdom. The third thing we see in the parable, and we definitely see the indifference, we see the hostility, but the third thing is this, selfishness. This is where the last part of the parable, if you look at verses 11 through 14, this is critical. Once the wedding feast began... Do you see what's happening? The king noticed that one of the guests wasn't wearing the proper wedding clothes. Well, that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? You imagine being invited to Mel and Rob's wedding. There they are, look. They're going to turn up on the day. They're going to be nicely attired. And you're going to be there in shorts, flip-flops, and a torn T-shirt. Seriously, Val, it's not a look I'd recommend for you. You know, you'd feel out of place, wouldn't you? And some muppet has turned up to this wedding inappropriately dressed. And you'll notice, I I don't know about you, but I've always thought in this parable, as I've read it, the king, he's a bit, ooh, tetchy, isn't he? He deals quite harshly with that individual. You notice that he he binds him, he casts him out into the darkness. I don't know about you, that does seem a bit severe. I mean, the king had invited everybody. The king, the king had done the inviting. This guy hadn't just shown up. He was there, we presume, because he'd been invited. In a similar parable in Luke's gospel, the servants are instructed deliberately to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. We wouldn't be surprised if one of them turned up and he didn't have the right shirt on, the right shoes. You've got to dig a little bit deeper here, though. The fact that only one person shows up without the proper garment is really, really important if we're to understand what Jesus is drawing attention to here in this parable. We know, for instance, in the culture of that day, the king would often supply the proper clothing to anybody who just wanted to come into his presence. There'd be an assumption that a lot of people wouldn't have the right attire, and so the king would supply clothing. But in this story, and it is a story that Jesus told, remember that, Jesus deliberately draws attention to the fact one guy turns up improperly dressed. I think Jesus is painting a deliberate picture here. And the deliberate picture is this somebody who had access to the proper garments, he could have asked for them, nevertheless decides to show up improperly attired. Now, is he one of those people that you and I know who will just do what the hell he likes, regardless of what the etiquette is? You know people like that? We all do. Well, I'm pretty sure, based on God's word, that I can identify the improper garment that this guest is wearing. I think the point of what Jesus is showing us here is very, very clear. I think this guest thought he knew best. And this guest wasn't prepared to go along with the etiquette of the day in asking the king for the right clothing. In other words, what Jesus wants us to understand here is that this guy turns up wearing garments of his own righteousness. Remember those words in Isaiah chapter 64? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. When we attempt to enter God's kingdom based on our own righteous deeds, we're actually being very, very selfish. Because we're in essence telling God, keep what you've got, son. I'm all right. I know what I'm doing. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I'm a Baptist. Is that going to get you into the kingdom? I'm a Sunday school teacher. I give generously to the life of the church. I'm faithful. I come week after week. Is our entry in based on our own criteria? You see, there's no shortage of people who mistakenly thought over the years that they're part of God's kingdom because of what they've done, what they've achieved. They may well believe in God, read the Bible, pray, go to church every week, give their money to help others. But God tells us that in his eyes, you're wearing the wrong clothes. It's nothing but filthy, polluted garment. So what's the proper wedding garment then? Well, Isaiah helpfully helps us understand. He says elsewhere, doesn't he, in Isaiah 61... I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I can't. I can't come with the right clothing. I haven't got it. My wardrobe's too small. I know some of you ladies have got massive wardrobes, but not even you've got the right attire. I've got to let the king provide the right dress for me. Only he has the right garment. I've got to allow him to clothe me. Do you see it? Did you get this? It's not what we can put on. The only way that we can come is humbly and trusting ourselves completely to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's what Paul is on about. He says you have to allow Jesus to become your righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this evening, if you've never moved beyond these three barriers, if you've, if you've been indifferent, if you've been hostile, if you've just been selfish, if you've never moved beyond those that accepted God's invitation to join the party and enter his kingdom, please, 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 my friend, don't leave here tonight without sorting this out. So this parable, it's a message of judgment to the Jewish leaders It's a call for each person to evaluate his or her response to God's call. But notice the third thing there. It's a call for all of Jesus' followers to invite others to the party. Hey, I like an invitation to a party. I feel left out when I don't get one. So there. But it's lovely, isn't it? And isn't it lovely to invite other people to a party you're having? Oh, I was gutted I couldn't come to John and Alison's wedding anniversary celebrations. You feel terrible when you can't attend. When's the last time we invited somebody to come and join the kingdom of heaven? When's the last time we invited somebody to God's party? I, I couldn't help but think a lot about the king's servants in this parable. I think this is where most of us fit into the story if you have to place yourself somewhere. You know, once we accept the king's invitation and become part of his kingdom, we become the messengers. We become the servants. Now, don't get me wrong. We get to enjoy the party as well. Whoop, whoop. There's one for you, Laura. Okay? Yeah, sorry. I can whoop, whoop with the rest. (laughs) But it doesn't negate us from having some responsibility. The king... Wants us to invite other people. We are not to keep all of this for ourselves. The joy of our salvation, yes, it sustains us and keeps us going. But we shouldn't be keeping that for ourselves. We should be telling other people. We should be inviting them to join us. I don't know about you, but I can really relate to these servants as a follower of Jesus. I can see the goodness of the king and I've experienced a joy for being part of his kingdom. And I am, as I said, baffled by those who refuse an invitation to enter his kingdom. I really do wonder sometimes, it must be me, that people can remain indifferent or hostile or selfish to the invitation. Fuck me, this church should be packed. Every church that's preaching the gospel faithfully here in Wales should be packed. What are we doing wrong? People say to me in my role with the Baptist Union sometimes, "Oh, how do you get the church to grow? Wrong question. Why isn't it growing? Is the right question. Why isn't it growing? It should. It's a living organism. It's you and me. It's not a building. Are you and I being the corks in the bottle? Are you and I the reason it's tripping up? Why do people remain indifferent to this wonderful gospel message? Why are people hostile? Why are people so selfish? Why are we not inviting people? I've certainly been treated with a degree of hostility at times by those whom I have invited. But I'm really encouraged that in this parable we can find some very practical guidance about how we as God's servants can go about the task of inviting other people. And I want to, in the final time I've got this evening, just share these with you, because I think there are three very distinct uh, commands that the king gives to his servants and gives to us today on how to invite others to God's party. So I I just want to share these with you quickly. How to invite others to God's party. Number one, go. Go on. Get out. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because none of you have shifted. Verse nine the king commands his servants to go to the main roads and invite many people as they find. It's very interesting in the similar parable in Luke, you find some other instruction about how they're to go. Remember this one? Go out quickly! To the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. The implication is that in order to invite others into the kingdom, we're not just to sit here in the comfort of this place in the unthreatening confines of this building. We're not to just sit back and expect Laura to design some nice attractive invitations to stick through letterboxes, or Tim to get on social media and put it out there. God calls you and me to leave the comfort of the church building and to personally take the invitations to where people are, in our homes, in our places of work, At the school gate, in our community, that kind of going, let's be honest, requires a whole new mindset. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but you are a postman missionary. Think about that. You are cleverly disguised as a husband or a father, a wife, a mother, a colleague, a shopper, a driver, or any other myriad of other roles that you and I fill in any one day. We are God's messengers delivering personal invitations to come, come and join the celebration, come and join the festivities, come and be part of God's kingdom. And yet look at us, rooted to the spot, Luke's account makes clear where to go quickly. I think that's very telling. None of us knows when God will quit issuing invitations to join his kingdom. How long have we got left? Don't know. We need to go. It's why Pastor Tim and myself have striven this year to, to really, really, really push this evangelism agenda. Because we need to be inviting people. We need confidence in being able to share our faith. Who are you witnessing to personally? If you've not been coming to the Connecting Together series on Wednesday evenings, who is it then that you are praying for? Because everybody on that course has been encouraged to get five names in the back of a book that they will pray for every day to come to know Jesus. Are you praying for somebody to come to know Jesus? Don't just sit there and say, Oh, yeah, I pray occasionally for my husband. Who are you pleading with God for? Who are you pleading with Him to save? We need to invite people members of our family, members of our community, colleagues at work, and we need to do it quickly. And that links into the second thing you see, it is about the invitation. The invite is key. The second command that the king gives in verse 9 is to invite. He tells his servants to invite as many as they can find. Again, Luke's account gives us some additional insight where we see that the king commands his servants to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. In other words, everybody. Not just those that we like the look of. It is amazing How much discrimination there is in the Church of Jesus Christ. Let's just be honest about it. And let's look around at this congregation tonight and admit it. We are incredibly middle class. And I wonder how embedded we truly are in our community. Do we understand the needs of the people that we rub shoulders with in this community? Are we willing to see them sitting next to us in a pew in this chapel? It's a serious challenge. There is no discrimination in this. As we saw last week, the invitations aren't based on what we deserve. But I'm telling you now, I don't deserve the grace of God in my life. And you better put your hand up as well, because I'm telling you now, you don't. God is not fair. Hallelujah. We need to invite. Our job is to invite on behalf of the king. Thirdly, finally, very quickly, we need to tell. Third and final command found back in verse four, the king gives the servant's instructions about what they're to say when extending his invitation. It's lovely, isn't it? There it is, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. We have to be prepared to speak. Oh, can't say anything. Well, you got to. You need to get confident and be able to share your faith. That's what the Connecting Together course has been doing. If you haven't done it, we can get you the videos. We can get you the book. Do it. Do it with another person. Why are we so reticent to talk about our faith? Well, it's not what we do, Pa. Yes, it is. Always be prepared to give an answer for anybody who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. We should be able to articulate our faith clearly. No embarrassment, no shame. And we can help you do that. I love this parable because it challenges me to the core. It challenges me to the core. Today is Trinity Sunday. Being good Anglicans. Most of us didn't pick up on that. But Jane did, and so in the preparing of our worship earlier on, she tried to frame the worship around that theme. And you may have heard in the prayer that Lynn prayed about the God of community, a God who exists in community and in relationship with himself through the expression of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our God is a God of relationship makes himself known to us supremely in his son. He's a mission God, a missionary God who has come to us and invited us to come and join the celebration. Have you accepted the invitation? What about you personally tonight? Have you accepted that? If you haven't, there's an opportunity for you to do that right now. But if you have, please, please, Get the invitation sorted out, will you? Because you need to take it out. And we need to invite others to come and join the party.